Hello and welcome to Rollin' Bones, the osteopathic podcast. I am your host, Dr. James, and back with us after a relaxing vacation is Dr. Dante. Hello. And we're going to talk about some interesting stuff about your body today, about how it heals itself and how we can help it heal itself. Now, in the past, we've talked a little bit about water and lymphatic flow and compared that to uh, the Mississippi River. And we're going back to that comparison today, but we're going to go in depth with the watered up subject. That was very not subtle, man. (laughs) I knew it. It was coming. You knew it was coming. And, you know, going back to this whole river metaphor, surrounding rivers is certain groundwater levels that keep your localized environment hydrated. Uh, Those are aquifers and other sources of groundwater. Well, in our body, we have an aquifer of sorts. And that aquifer is called the fascia. Now, the fascia plays a very important role in keeping our bodies hydrated and keeping water moving through the body. And Dr. Dante and I were both recently introduced to a very important book. It's called Quench, as by, by Dr. Dana Cohen, yes, MD, and um, also an anthropologist. Um, I'm just Gina blanking on the name. I got her name. Her name is uh, Dr. Gina Bria. Dr. Gina Bria. Sorry, Dr. Bria. Got that. And they they talk about a very important aspect of our body, and that is the maintaining of hydration. Now, why am I talking about body, body water? Why are we going into hydration today? Well, Dr. Still, who we introduced in the first episode, had a very revolutionary idea, and that was the body has this innate ability to regulate itself and to heal itself. And hydration plays a very important role in that. If we're going to cultivate health as healthcare uh, healers, as uh, physicians, being aware of this ability to hydrate oneself for health is important. Um, And as an osteopathic physician, this is key for us to understand this. Now, Dr. Dante, the the body's capability uh, for self-healing, how does that invigorate us as physicians and how does that uh, give patients extra power in their own healing process so one of the things that defines how we act clinically right Mm -hmm. is this idea that the patients can heal themselves it's that our role isn't necessarily to do all the repair work it's to do what's necessary to make it so that the patients can heal so this process this thing that needs to be defined well, it's it's actually our job. It's what we're aiming for. So when I'm looking at pathology, I'm not necessarily looking at how do I cure this thing. It's what do I need to do to make the body capable of curing the thing. That might be an esoteric difference at the superficial level. It's a different, but at the same time, that's the difference between saying, hey, this, uh, I don't know, this heart disease needs a statin, right? Right, we're or to lower levels of a particular chemical by using another chemical. Right, or this heart disease needs some sort of exercise intervention. And sure, we can say that at the superficial level, but at the same time, to act on that, to base your practice on the idea, that means that a lot of my, let's say time, a lot of my education, a lot of my self-study is gonna be focused really on that other, on that other picture. So fine, exercise is what you need to make the body heal, what does it mean for me to guide you to exercise, to move, and so on and so forth? 
as opposed to trying to intervene from afar with the repair work with the medicine that we insert. Does that make sense? Sure, sure. So we are interacting with this aquifer of sorts, this fascia, by allowing movement of fluids within the fascia. We've talked in the past how yeah. when lymphatic flow stops, life also stops. Right. And this plays into that idea. If we can keep your water moving within your body, within the various regions of your body, then we can help the body remain balanced and healthy. Correct. Now, in regards to the balanced and healthy part, that's the really cool thing about this notion. What was so controversial about still self-healing mechanism wasn't that it wasn't that the body can heal. Everybody knows that if you get cut, you know, I mean, the tissue will grow yeah, back. You see That's the scar form and close up and eventually come back to relative normal. Right. It's, it was this higher order idea that the nature of the human form is to strive towards health. That was the way the idea was actually conceptualized. It wasn't just that the body maintains itself. It's that it actually actively works towards a better version of itself, which is very different and strange idea in the Western context. The only other place I've seen that really pushed aggressively was um, actually in uh, depth psychology, Carl Jung's literature about the self trying to beckon uh, the self, the idea that right, right. the future you is trying to beckon the present you to be the future you, kind of in the same way that nature instills conception is trying to draw health from uh, the current version of who you are. and. That sounds really esoteric and fancy and cool and kind of mystical. But the more we evolve as clinicians, the more the science has evolved to catch up with some of these um, traditional ideas, the more we're learning that it's more accurate than we thought it would be. We thought that maybe it's a metaphor, maybe we can you know, put it away once we've learned enough. But no, the more we learn, the more we're realizing that might actually be more accurate than we're comfortable to admit. Sure, I mean, we've, we've spent the last century as physicians relying on pharmaceuticals to affect the inner environment, the ecosystem of the body. If we felt that there was a deficiency, we would replace that deficiency. If we felt there was an overabundance, we tried to stop that over and, uh, overabundance from happening by giving chemicals, medications, if you will. Yeah. And now we're coming to realize that the body already produces most of the chemicals it needs. There are very few vitamins that are not made by the body that need to be supplemented from sources outside of that body. And most of those can be sourced through dietary choices. Right. So now we are realizing that if we can enhance the ability of the body to produce those vital nutrients that it needs, then perhaps that we can enhance health. Right. And that there is the central conceit of the osteopathic thing. Before it was called osteopathy, back when it was just this thing that this guy did in the middle of the Midwest, he had this idea that as long as you had certain prerequisites, you know, good nutrition, sleep, some movement, and all that good stuff, he had this idea, still had this idea of an apothecary in your body that you had access to. And if you would learn how to access it, you would heal thyself versus, um, you know, the, again, we don't have to go full tilt into what medicine was like back in the day, but mercury was the drug of choice, and um, that, yeah. that's a problem. Yeah, that, that was a problem many times. Uh, there was even a, 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 an oil company that was selling straight on petroleum as a cancer cure, among other things. 
I mean, Vaseline's really cool, but it's not going to stop cancer, man. But don't take it internally. <laughs> I'm going to let that sit right where that's at, actually. <laughs> we're not going to elaborate on that one. Low-hanging fruit. <laughs> but the doctor still had some very uh, influential students uh, early on, and one in particular noticed some interesting things about patients that he was examining. And this is a, a Dr. Sutherland. Yes. He noticed a, a rhythm of sorts within the tissues of patients that he was examining and treating. Let's, let's talk about that rhythm a bit. Sure, sure. So I guess the best way to introduce this rhythm idea is to back up just a second. So when A.T. still generated this idea of the self-healing body of the nature that is beckoning uh, the present self towards a healthier self in the future. A lot of his students bought into it fair enough. and Well, they saw it work, and absolutely. so they decided, let's, let's pursue this further. Right. But a mystery that was not solved at the time was what the heck is that actual healing mechanism? One of the big things about this field was the intense questioning, the intense study of the anatomy. It must be proven. It must be seen. It must be witnessed. For all the uh, things we do in the present practice, back in the day, one of the big things that defined osteopathy was they took nothing on faith. They had to prove it. and Which makes sense. Absolutely. Evidence-based. We do that all the time in medicine nowadays. Of course we do. I'm, I'm going to not talk about Pfizer today. <laughs> we'll leave that well enough alone. Maybe, maybe uh, next season or something. <laughs> but Sutherland, um, which was one of still students, decided to really take this idea of the self-healing mechanism seriously. And he spent most of his academic career not just treating patients, but hunting for this mechanism, searching for it, mm -hmm. trying to map it out so that his students wouldn't have to take it on faith. His students would be able to actually know what it means that the body can heal itself. Now, Sutherland's studies and his investigations led him to the brain, actually, or rather to the skull, to the cranium as a whole, to the cranial bowl. He wanted to get ahead of everything. Indeed. <laughs> Almost lost his head, but he found his head, and we're just going to spin around that idea way too much. Oh, boy. But the dude actually strapped a bunch of gloves onto his skull, tightened it around a belt to see what would happen if he crushed his skull just right, and um, didn't like it much. No, that would be uncomfortable. I've seen that uh, little device. It was not a pleasant-looking contraption. Right. He had this idea that perhaps the health-providing mechanism is this rhythm thing. Where the heck is this rhythm thing coming from? He proposed that perhaps it was coming from the brain, or rather from the nervous system, uh, something central. He didn't quite have it all conceived at the time, so he began his investigations. But after squeezing his head, crushing his bones, and doing all sorts of crazy stuff, um, crazy cool stuff, I should clarify, he eventually evolved this idea of what you call the primary respiratory mechanism. Right. Which, right. in his writings, he had you have to remember, when you're the first person to delineate a thing, a lot of the literature around it's going to be kind of strange and sloppy, not because it's a bad idea, but because you're the first to explore Just the thing. Just because it's new. There's right. no supporting data to uh, compare it with. Right. So he called it uh, the tide. He called it the breath of life. He called it the fluid within the fluid, which is my personal favorite phrase for it. But it was this idea that there's this thing in the cerebrospinal fluid that seems to fluctuate and the presence and lack of it seems to be correlating with the health throughout the body. Right. So as far as still, uh, sorry, as far as Sutherland was concerned, his 
advancement of Still's ideas was that the healing mechanism that underlies the entire body physiology is this primary respiratory mechanism, hence primary, as in prime, as in the essential, the first. Is underlying everything else. Exactly. So you can have all the joints straightened and bones popped in the world, but if the primary respiratory mechanism, if the underlying rhythm is dysfunctional, it's kind of all for naught. That's at least the proposition he made. And going back to that idea of flow, if you build a dam on a river, then downstream of that dam, you lose the deposition of normal nutrients that would enhance the soil and re, uh, reinvigorate it from flooding, which was what happens every year. We see this in ecosystems all the time where you build dams and then downriver from that ecosystem, you don't have flooding, you don't have deposition of new nutrients and the soil becomes less uh, conducive to life. Exactly. Damming the river is kind of like in these studies, holding up the skull, cr- holding on to the temporal bone so that it doesn't wiggle and wobble the way it ought to is like damming up the river in this Mississippi metaphor. Mm-hmm. Now, beyond Dr. Sutherland, there was another um, student of osteopathy further down the line that described some similar things, wasn't there? Correct. He's actually the namesake of the show. <laughs> yeah, we, we named the show and then we realized this works so well because Roland Becker yeah. was his name. Indeed. And Flo was his game. Welcome to Roland Bones, the osteopathic podcast. We may have accidentally named ourselves after Roland Becker, (laughs) who was a fundamental and um, profound developer of the osteopathic idea. So in the same way that Sutherland took Still's healing mechanism and articulated as the primary respiratory mechanism, what a lot of Becker did was take this primary primary respiratory mechanism and try to really outline what are these waves, what are the undulations. It's kind of like if Sutherland discovered the tide, Becker is the guy who's out there with like the weird measurement tools saying, what the heck does the tide do? Wait, the moon <laughs> does stuff. <laughs> and where does the tide go? And what di- how does it move? Right. He descri- what does that do? Yeah. He described a fast tide and a slow tide. Um, and what happened was when he places his hands on his patients, he would feel this, this rhythm, this extending, contracting phenomenon that would happen roughly every um, eight to 12 seconds, and he would call that his fast tide. And he realized that if you try to facilitate that tide, you can help your patients get better in ways that just didn't make sense in a purely biomechanical sense. Right. But the thing that was really cool about him and um, was profound was he described this other thing. So not only is there this fast tide, he described the long tide, or the slow tide was how he conceptualized it. it was this. Um, once every 90 seconds thing that would just kind of rise and fall underneath this entire rhythm. And no matter what the heck he tried to do, he could not manipulate it. He couldn't interact with it. He couldn't uh, enhance it or restrict it. Right. All he could do was play ball with it or get in its way. And he realized that if he did his treatments in line with that rhythm, things would happen much more profoundly, much faster, much, you know, more meaningfully. But if he tried to fight it, things would be bad. Imagine, if you will, standing at the shore trying to fight the tide. Mm. And he realized you don't fight the tide. You lean with it, you rock with it. Yeah, you go with it. Exactly. Otherwise, it'll take you away. Indeed. And um, riptides are bad. Riptides are bad. I, I remember as a kid once uh, 
uh, being foolish enough to uh, wade, wade through a stream that was swollen with uh, winter melt. And uh, I survived it, obviously, but I remember the force of that water against me as I was wading through that stream. I was about thigh deep in this water. Boy, that was a powerful, powerful force. And within our body, this, this same flow, this same tide can be an extremely powerful force for healing and for good. Right. Poseidon commands respect. Exactly. Where's our trident when we need it? Um, I actually have a trident in my garage. I'm not even kidding. <laughs> well, we're going to have to put that up on Facebook one of these days. <laughs> yeah, there's a Halloween picture somewhere. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's um, Trident from Little Mermaid, like a cardboard cutout of his trident. Okay. Just kind of hanging in my garage next to like a bunch of spears and stuff. Excellent. Excellent. All right. So the, the water idea, the hydration idea, the tide idea, that brings us to this book, Quench. Correct. And uh, Dr. Cohen uh, outlined some fascinating research that's revealing some new characteristics of the body that had not been recognized in general, although you could make an argument that Dr. Still, Dr. Sutherland, Dr. Becker all observed different properties of these uh, new findings but had no way of describing them. Right. It's like the elephant thing with uh, the bunch of folks. Oh, one's yeah, touching the, the trunk and one's one touching the, the tail ears, and one's fingers up the butt and all that stuff. <laughs> and an elephant must be a tree. It must be a, a snake. Or, right. You know, whatever. Because yeah. it's one thing to, to, to palpate, to, to feel the thing. But in all sincerity, those guys just didn't know what it was. They didn't have the means to know, like you they said. They didn't have the technology yet. Right. They knew it was important. They knew to do something with it. But if you can't prove it, if you can't demonstrate it to those who can't feel it, then there's this barrier here that we need to learn how to cross. And lo and behold, these ladies here with their um, research, with their book, compiled together a massive corpus that seems to articulate beautifully the thing that our guys um, have been fighting to prove exists. And that's kind of cool. That's awesome. I, I, and I, I happened upon this book as I was visiting a local library. I was studying for an exam and had to take a break, and I just wandered back in the uh, medical science section of the, the public library, and there is this book. I was like, wow, this is great. Got reading it, and it's just amazing. And they talk about water, for example. We are used to water being in three phases, right? We think of the liquid phase at room temperature. We think of the solid phase of ice at, at uh, below zero degrees or, um, Celsius or 32 degrees Fahrenheit. Or we think of the gas phase once you start boiling water and it evaporates. But come to find out, there's a fourth phase of water. And that fourth phase happens at 98 degrees in biological systems. So the water in our body and the water in plants, the water in living things stored away in cells is not generally liquid. It's gel. And it, it's an interesting description that, that they make that the water shouldn't be called H2O. It should be H3O2 because not only is the water in gel form, it's like a liquid crystal. Now, why does that matter? What's this liquid crystal thing? Because most folks, myself included, don't necessarily intuitively understand what a liquid crystal is. Well, a liquid crystal in particular, one of the properties is if you squeeze it, it creates electricity. So your body uh, becomes a walking battery. But that's the key is you have to squeeze it. You have to put it pr under pressure. And how do you put water under pressure in a biologic system? You throw it in cells that move. 
and you stretch those cells and you compress those cells. And as you stretch them and compress them, you start generating electricity. And what does our nervous system run on? Electricity, from electricity. what I understand. Electricity. So we're, we're a walking dynamo. We're a walking power source. And that is going to be uh, some big things for us because we work in electrical systems. Right. Really, as osteopathic physicians, we work every day with electricity and with flow. And that's when I when I first learned about that, that blew my mind because now now I'm I'm seeing what Dr. Sutherland was talking about with a, a, a rhythm and Dr. F and Dr. Becker talking about uh, tide. And where is this coming from? But this water, the way it's in our body, is not the same as the water we're drinking from the tap. Right. And we're probably going to have to dive into the physiology of that just to kind of walk out the anatomy. One of the most profound things I learned, not just reading that book, but double-checking their actual sources, plus watching some really cool videos made by some French guy who, with a fiber-optic camera, was that the thing we used to describe as the breath of life, which we then called the long tide and the short tide, which we palpate as this rhythmic thing, we used all of these water metaphors in order to describe this undulating sensation in our hands. And then, after all said and done, we look at this literature, this evolving literature that's only about like maybe 20 years old. The metaphor stops being a metaphor, which the more I'm doing this job, I'm realizing is one of my favorite sentences to say, because the moment the metaphor becomes reality, you end up with a superordinate thing where you go, holy crap, they were right the whole time. Um, it looks like, and this is where it becomes kind of cool and a little bit controversial, if all of this data plays out the way this data suggests, the thing that we may be palpating when we do craniosacral therapies, the thing we may be palpating when we do our biodynamic work, might be this thing that they're describing as this hydrating system, which I think we're going to enjoy talking about um, just in a moment. Here's a fun fact. In Mexico, there's a tribe called the Raramuri. What these people do is they drink fermented corn in the morning and take down maybe a handful, two handfuls of chia seeds. Why do they do this? They do this because they enjoy, they seem to like running across a desert, maybe 50 miles at a time. Here's the crazy part though. That is all they drink and eat prior to their runs, as in a little bit of fermented corn, a little bit of chia seed seems to be sufficiently hydrating that you can run across the desert in the heat for 50 miles. And that's amazing. Why? Because where we are, in the States, typically, we drink, what, 64 ounces of water? And most of us are dying of thirst. Why? Because we forget to link it to something that'll keep it in there. When you drink your water, in order to keep it in your tissues, you need to attach it to something. You need fiber, you need minerals, electrolytes. It's what your body craves. All right, so we've talked about all of this flow, but I think it's important for us to get into some of the evidence and some of the research that has led us down this path that up until the last mm, 15 or 20 years, we haven't really even had the technology to study Correct. much of this. And that, that has been part of the dis, uh, difficulties we've faced for the last century from the osteopathic side is how do we show what we're doing actually has a physiologic basis. Right. We knew it worked. We saw anecdotally that it worked, but we didn't have a good way of 
describing the mechanisms behind it. We suspected things, but we had no way of going about it. And then we had this serendipitous event with an orthopedic surgeon in France. Yeah. Who made really a surprising discovery. Correct. So I guess let's, let's walk the line and tell the story of how the evidence evolved. So this, this orthopod, or orthopedic surgeon, we call them orthopods because I guess Dr. Slang, <laughs> this orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Jean-Claude Gimberto, I think is how you pronounce his last name. Our French isn't very good. We try our best. My French is quite the opposite of good. It is bad to non-existent. <laughs> um, anyway, he got this bright idea of taking his f a fiber optic camera, and before doing his hand procedures, he would um, float the camera inside the, uh, the arm, inside the wrist in particular, light it up, and just take a peek in to see what's going on. And then he would play with the fingers and move them around just to see what's going on because, one, he needs to know whether or not things are there to cut, but two, who the heck puts a camera inside the body while it's alive and looks around for fun? Yeah, up until that point, everyone had been dead. Exactly. We were studying cadavers, and that has a significant limitation. Indeed, they're dead. <laughs> they're dead. Yes, and um, yeah. living things and dead things aren't the same. If you thought they were the same, you clearly haven't watched Game of Thrones. <laughs> No spoiler alerts here. <laughs> uh, it was from episode one of season one. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. So anyway, what this guy does is he takes a fiber optic camera, floats it inside the wrist, and then he lights it up and takes a peek at what's inside. And what does he find? He finds this lattice work, this series of icosahedrons stacked on top of each other over mm -hmm. and over and over again, made of fascia. And he describes watching something very odd that nobody was really talking about before. One. We always conceive of fascia as ropes and fibers, right? And right? Even you and I, we tend to talk about it using a rope metaphor or a spring metaphor. Even when we describe it clinically, it's ropey in texture. It's exactly. hard. It's, it's tight. Right. And um, because of the high resolution of his camera, he was able to say, no, guys, Wait the thicker second. fibers are like that, but the sure. thin fibers, they're actually tubes. And that's different. Why? Because tubes are hollow on the inside. So if the tubes are hollow, they ought to be doing something. What he was able to document, witness, record, and post on YouTube. It's on YouTube, guys. Check it out, guys. Which means it's real, <laughs> obviously. Of course. Is that um, when the fascia moves, it will actually push water from proximal to distal. What does that mean? That means that droplets of water are migrating down the fascial uh, fibers, kind of like ants on a stick carrying their water molecules from one part of the body to another, all the way to the little fingertips. That was cool in its own right, but what he also noticed, and what was also documented and videotaped, was that it wasn't just active or passive movement in the fingers that would cause that fascial winding-unwinding. If you left the body still and just let go and let the camera be there, there would still be this undulation, this little push, this little pull, and it would happen in about 90 seconds. And that's pretty cool um, because, one, we didn't know that happened. Two, the fascia winding and unwinding on its own, that's pretty crazy. How the heck is that happening? What was amazing and convenient was the literature from a different uh, set of hypernerds in Germany. Um, Dr. Schleip, uh, who uh, produced a, book, a textbook for fascial physiology, found a great study by this guy, uh, Folonier, Folonier, something along those lines. Again, European names, I'm really bad at this. <laughs> Filipino, right. man. And All the way. What he ended up doing was, Filonia was able to describe the fascia will oscillate, wind and unwind, at a rate of 90 plus or minus 30 seconds. But the event seemed to be mediated by the innervation of the fascia. 
We know the fascia is very, very, very richly innervated. We know it senses a lot of data. It's, it's sending all sorts of data and receiving all sorts of data all the time. Exactly. And it looks like one of the signals it's sending from the central coordinating God knows where somewhere in the, in the brain or maybe in the spinal cord is this command signal for the entire body's fascia to wind and unwind, lo and behold, at a rate of 90 plus or minus 30 seconds. Very similar to a tide. Exactly. There's a, a tide right. described by Roland Becker. Indeed, because um, when Becker described his long tide, the one he could not affect, the one he could not reach and could only bear witness to, what had to happen was he had to time it. And he goes, roughly every six to eight uh, cycles per 10 minutes. And if you do that math, you end up with about 90 seconds. About 90 seconds. About 90 seconds. And that's amazing because that means that if all of this data sits out correctly, the thing that the osteopaths, the osteopathic physicians are trained to palpate for their craniosacral therapies Among is the thing things. that is fascial winding unwinding, which is the thing that um, is pushing hydration from proximal to distal. Take it back a step further, just to bring this thing full circle. AT still once upon a time talked about a healing mechanism. Sutherland decides to go, hey, this healing mechanism is this primary respiratory thing. I don't know what it is, but that's probably it. Becker goes, it's this tidal motion. Schleip goes, it's fascia. And then French guy, um, Gimberto, goes, hey, when the fascia winds and unwinds, it's pushing hydration across the body. The self-healing mechanism described by our academic and professional forebear seems to be the movement of water across our tissues. Again, leading us back to the idea that stasis is death and movement is life. Indeed. And as we're able to transfer that water from region to region and tissue to tissue, we allow the body to heal itself. Absolutely. Taking it one step further, because I'm enjoying citing our, our teachers for this episode, mm -hmm. Dr. Crow, who, um, wrote, who uh, with, uh, I forgot that fellow's name, it was Crow and Spies. Spies, yes. Wrote a book for ligamentous arterial strain. It's one mm -hmm. of the manuals for techniques. And in the opening chapters, he describes what you're actually doing with this um, BLT, craniosacral work, and he was talking about when you get fluid to move freely at the cellular level, it's, you have to remember why that matters. Your cells, your body is what, 70% water, something along those lines? Yeah, yeah around that. Right, sure. but remember, the cells themselves are like 98% water. The water is what we're primarily made of. The washing, the tide, the ebbs and the flows at that cellular level, that's the substrate through which the processes of, of life manifest. That's so, how nutrients are transferred. That's how you're, you're transferring uh, the uh, different hormones and chemicals that your body needs to communicate with. Exactly. That's how you're getting refuse out of the cell so it can be excreted, and that's how you're getting nutrition into the cell. Right. Uh, in a very simplistic way. There are obviously other processes involved with that. But if you're not able to move the water, uh, if you stagnate, then things built up that shouldn't be there, and that can lead to chronic inflammation, that can lead to cell death, right. that can eventually lead to poor health and conditions that now are going to require medications to correct. Right. A little while back we talked about how stagnation of uh, these metabolic fluids, of the lymph fluid that should be our sewage, that should be our drainage, if that backs up in the wrong place, you end up with damage to the surrounding tissue. If that backs up in the heart or in the arteries, you end up with plaques. and I don't know if we have to go and describe how plaques in your heart are a bad idea. You die if that happens yeah. on the record. It's called a heart attack. Yeah, you, you don't want plaques built up in your heart. 
Right. Not and, a good not a good thing. And it all boils back to movement. And I thought that was profound. I remember when I first made that connection preparing for this episode, um, it was it was almost like the ghost of like our entire like career and all that crazy stuff just manifesting in a bunch of papers. Like, hey, I think we got it. We've got it. We've got to move. We've got to have that tide. Right. And uh, we, we've been we've been chatting uh, about how important this is to recognize it. Uh, we we were thinking uh, uh, back to the movie Jurassic Park, and you remember the scene where there's a cup of water and there's a thump, and you see the water move, and that signals to get Jeff Goldblum's character something's going on, and he says, "Yep, that's." That's definitely an impact tremor. Yeah. And there, you know, T-Rex is coming down the road and it's going to inflict all sorts of damage. In the same vein, we watch this flow. And when we see it stop or when we see it slow down or even change pace at all, then we know something is going on. Right. That maybe we need to be working on, clinically speaking. Right. And what does that mean on our table? When we palpate our patients, most of the time we're talking about the joint position, we're talking about the muscle tension. Every now and again, we talk about this other trait. The word we use for it is vitality, especially mm -hmm. when we're moving mm -hmm. and working with the skull or the cranium. We don't talk about restriction sometimes. We don't talk about position sometimes. We talk about, hey, there's a lot of vitality in this. And that can sound really mystical. That really sounds kind of magical in a sense. Well, it does. But, but when you, that's okay. Right, but when you ask what these guys are talking about, like what do they feel that they're code wording with the word vitality? They're talking about the potency of this tide, the amplitude mm -hmm. of this tide, because um, one of the things that seems to correlate really well with good health isn't just the rate and the amplitude and the reach of it, oh, sorry, the rate and the reach of it, it's the magnitude of the waveform. And I don't know if anybody has listened to music in their lives once before, but you can tell amplitude pretty naturally hey, this is pretty quiet, hey, this is really loud. Yeah, dynamics are a very common ap aspect of music that can be um, affected by what the performer is doing and can direct the way you respond to the music. I mean, dynamics are an integral part of music that uh, causes you to be emotionally responsive to that music. Right. As a matter of fact, music without dynamics is boring. Exactly, music without dynamics is, um, it's not flat because flat is another word for music. It's um, kind of dead. It's it dull. It's robotic. Unless you're really into dubstep, in which case, good for you. But dubstep and dynamics aren't exactly different terms, different genres, yeah. different age well, groups. We'll, we'll leave that debate off for another episode. Well, maybe for another series. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Maybe the intro to this show should be EDM. For, no, not a chance in heck. No, no way. No, no way. It doesn't, doesn't suit our vibe. Now, the interesting thing about this dynamic, we'll go with dynamic. Dynamic is good. The, this tide. Traditionally, in the osteopathic world, we, we talk about it in the sense of feeling cranial motion. But in reality, it can be felt anywhere in the body. Correct. And some of the best uh, physicians that use the osteopathic approach for treatment will feel for those changes anywhere in the body. It can be down at the feet, it can be down up at the head, down the arms, right? and they will feel the difference in that as they treat their patient, as it becomes more regular, or it appears where it had been dampened. Exactly. Then they know that the treatment has improved. When you go in and see a, an osteopathic physician who uses this, this type of approach, 
you may think things are going a little strange when that uh, said physician just sits at one location in the body, closes their eyes, puts their head down a little bit, and just feels. And you wonder, what are they doing? They're not doing anything. I came in there to be snap, crackle, pop. They're not doing anything. In reality, they're doing a lot. Right. They're reading what that tide is doing. They're, if ever, um, get the image of dropping a microphone into the ocean to listen to the ambient noise, that thing where the doc puts their hands on, closes their eyes, and just kind of takes that, that posture, that, that almost zoning out of your body, warging thing. Uh, I've been watching a lot of Game of Thrones lately. <laughs> well, I was thinking Finding Nemo. There you, you go. You can't speak well, Dory. Yeah, let's run with that. <laughs> but that posture is because we're putting all of our focus into our palms, into our bodies to get a sense for what's happening there. Because look, at the end of the day, can we feel the thing? Yeah, pretty reliably. In fact, one of our exams to get, you know, to pass our boards is can we feel the dang thing? But it is kind of hard to feel. Admittedly, it takes practice to pick up on it. It takes even more practice to be able to read it, let alone manipulate using it, you know? Well, so yeah, we it's, it's just like playing an instrument. Most people can't just pick up a trumpet and go play something by Louis Armstrong. Right. It takes a lot of practice and use. Right. You need to train those hands, which is why we train for so long to get this to happen. But the cool thing about it is we can get a, a palpable, a tactile sense of your overall health with our hands because, um, and this is one of the really cool things I learned through my residency training more so than any paper, was putting my hands on enough people. You can almost get a sense of when that amplitude, when that tide, when that potency in your hands is relatively small. Think about music terms like pianissimo, mm -hmm. very soft. Mm -hmm. There's something up with that. But then you put your hands on somebody robust and otherwise healthy and it's just a booming forte, you know what I mean? And you're like, yeah, whatever this guy's got going on, I'll crack his back, we're good to go. In <laughs> fact, it <laughs> almost plays out. again. Right, it plays out kind of like that. Like, look, if everything's moving just fine, I'm gonna switch to biomechanical, I'm gonna put this rib back in call the day. But if you're coming to me with chronic pain, and I'm looking at you and everything's all, all sorts of out of place, I can put it back. But if I put my hands on and the tissue does not feel right, if the texture is wrong, tar changes, right, if it's boggy, if it lacks that flow, then there's something we're gonna have to do other than just manipulate the joint. I'm gonna have to talk about what the heck is making this so impotent. Hey, that's the word. There we go. It's impotent. Why? It's lack of dynamics. Right. And sometimes it's because of pathology. Sometimes it's straight up you don't move enough. Sometimes it's because of your diet. Sometimes it's you're dehydrated because the cool thing about this is you drink all the water in the world, right? Mm -hmm. And that'll get the water from your mouth to your gut, your gut to your bloodstream, but that isn't good enough to get it to your limbs, is it? No, and that's one of the aspects of, of quench that is uh, emphasized that fits well within the osteopathic realm. We've talked in the past about movement. Movement is life and life is movement. Hydration is also life, but hydration doesn't happen without movement. And that is why one of the things we do as osteopathic physicians is get you moving again. When your tissues are boggy, it's because your fluids are not moving out of the tissues. We've got to get them moving again. If your back is hurting, it's, it's in some cases because your muscles have tightened because you're not moving. But when you're not moving, then you're dehydrating. And when you're dehydrated, the muscles aren't working efficiently. So we get you dehydrated, or we get you hydrating yourself again. One of the one of the main things I talk about my patients to my patients nowadays when they come in with pain of any sorts is I, my first question is often, "How are your hydration habits?" I don't 
term it that way. I, I what are your about, hydration habits? Beep, boop, beep, boop. Yeah, what, what are you drinking and what are you eating? Because that's one of the keys for good hydration is eating hydration, eating water that's already in its biological format, that right. H3O2 format. We see from some of these cultures that live in very extreme arid conditions that they don't drink a whole lot of water. What they do instead is they eat fluid uh, foods that are high in water content, whether it be cactus or melons or fruit, especially apples and uh, cucumbers, those kinds of things that right. are high in water content. And what we're finding is if you're dehydrated, you hurt. And if you rehydrate, you hurt less. Go figure. How about that? Figure that. Not only that, once you start rehydrating yourself and you move, uh, I love the term that they use in that book, uh, micro-movements. Yeah, I've yeah. been using that with patients a lot more. Uh, it's a fancy doctor speak for fidgeting. Of course, doctors always come up with big fancy words for simple stuff. It's what we're paid for. That's, that's why people <laughs> come to see us. They want to hear the big words. <laughs> like beep boop. <laughs> beep boop, which I'd like to hear you, or I'd like to see you chart that one of these days. Sure, sure. <laughs> I beep boop the patient and voila, they got better. If the coders can figure that out, I will, I will give them money out of my own pocket. <laughs> we have that on tape. <laughs> Challenge accepted. <laughs> and that we see that fidgeting, that micro movement can actually improve all-cause all mortality rates and improve health as well. So I've started to talk to my patients not just about how they're consuming water, but how they're using water, how they're uh, moving. Right. I, I find that the patients who move the most are the ones who often respond long-term the best to the treatments that we do. Right. And it's, we're layering a complex idea on top of another complex idea with, with this one because sometimes we talk about movement as the intense thing, right? Right. You must struggle, you must fight. You must bench press 400 pounds. Right, find the saber-toothed tiger, slap him in the face, grab his tooth and stab him with it. <laughs> Sometimes now we're talking that, about movement in that. Image. Oh yeah. man, we need Samson for that one, right. Hercules. <laughs> Point being, sometimes you need to move at that low level of intensity because that's what drains the lymph out of you. When you move intensely, when you move with that passion, that fear, that amygdalic activation, the flight or flight or freeze reflex, right? Mm -hmm. That's what helps pump all the crazy stuff off of you. That's lymphatic drainage. This is not that movement. We're talking about gentle, soft things. Think Tai Chi, think micro movements, think fidgeting, think going for a pleasant walk, you know what mm -hmm. I mean? Mm -hmm. Because that doesn't really drain your lymph well. What that does do is irrigate. And we need irrigation. Exactly, because if you're not irrigating, what are we gonna drain? <laughs> Nothing. Right, you end up with just dry, cracked, clay-like floors of my house because I live in Texas. Yeah, that's, that's the absolute truth. Yeah. Summer's in Texas, man. Now, um, I know we like the word dehydration. I've been playing with this image in my head describing what it means to irrigate that fascia, and I was trying to find a good metaphor for it, and it was really hard, because these are some weird ideas, but... You might say it's fascinating. Fascinating, Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. <laughs> have you ever seen saran wrap? Oh yeah. Have you ever tried to put two pieces of saran wrap together? Well, they stick. Yeah, they do, don't they? Don't, they? They, don't, uh, they don't move freely at all. Indeed, and that's a problem because that gets all over the place. And then your kid puts it into a ball, throws it at the dog. Anyway, what I'm getting at is our f connective tissue has a friction quality similar to saran wrap in a sense, as in when it's 
dry, it sticks together, it tacks down, you feel those knots in your body, right? When you move well, imagine if you will, and try this at home actually, take two pieces of saran wrap, rub them together, see what happens, you're not going to like it. Take another two pieces of saran wrap, take a drop of water, and layer it between, rub it around a bit, and watch how smoothly those two pieces of plastic glide upon each other. That's what we're talking about here, and that's what this gentle, fidgeting, soft movement does. It irrigates your tissue so that it can glide and slip and slide and all that sorts of good stuff because it is pretty cool when humans glide and slip and slide. We're not exactly rocks all the time, you know what I mean? Because Most of us, for sure. Exactly, unless you're the rock. No, I'm not the rock. Yeah. yeah. That's two times we've referenced them on the show. I hope he starts listening soon. <laughs> Fortunately, as osteopathic physicians, we're trained in how to assess your fascia. And so come to us, we will find the problems in your fascia, we'll fix the problems in your fascia, and then we'll leave it alone. And thank you for joining us for another episode of uh, Rolling Bones, the osteopathic podcast. We are excited for our last episode of the season coming up. It's going to be a sleepy one because we're going to talk about sleep. So we'll talk to you then. Thank you for listening to Rolling Bones, the osteopathic podcast. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Rollin' Bones Pod, or shoot us an email at rollinbonespod at gmail.com. That's R-O-L-L-I-N Bones, P-O-D. Rollin' Bones is brought to you by the University of North Texas and Texas College of Osteopathic Medicine. Executive producer Brenda Jaskulski, producer Rob Upchurch, and medical advisor Dr. Saj Survey contributed to this podcast. Medicine is a constantly changing science and art with various approaches from practitioner to practitioner. This podcast presents the Roland Bones doctor's views of osteopathic medicine and osteopathic manipulative treatment and will be as evidence-based as possible. Comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors are welcome. No money from drug or device companies is accepted. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use this podcast as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others, including but not limited to patients that you are treating. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. This applies to the host, guests, and contributors to the podcast. Under no circumstances shall James Aston, Dante Perez, Saj Survey, podcast producers, the University of North Texas, Texas College of Osteopathic Medicine, or any guests or contributors to the podcast be responsible for damages arising from use of the podcast. This podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast. This podcast is HIPAA compliant. While you may give your email address to make comments or requests, we will never share your email address or contact information with any third parties without your explicit permission.